This is an ABC podcast. Norman, I can only assume that you're on Quokka Countdown at the moment with WA poised to reopen its borders. I can just imagine you're going to be on the first flight over to Rotnest. Well, not on the first flight, but I, I am planning. I'm sort of revving up to go. But we actually had a you know somebody writing in suggesting we should have a new Coronacast T-shirt, which has got a new Omicronometer on it. A Quokometer is what they think you should have. A Quokometer. And the Quokometer registers high when somebody's speaking a Quokka S-H-I-T. Oh, that's very naughty. So let's see what the Quokometer shows for today's Coronacast. Yes, let us start today's Coronacast. Of course, I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. I'm physician and Quokka lover, Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 25th of February, 2022. And Norman, we spent the last two years covering what's basically been the biggest news story of our time, which has been the coronavirus, which has not gone away. But another really big news story is brewing, which is the tension between Russia and Ukraine and what that could mean for the rest of the world. And without getting too far off piste, I know that you love giving a history lesson. And I know that there's actually quite a strong relationship between war and pandemics. I wonder if we could talk about what any conflict between Russia and Ukraine could mean for our recovery from COVID-19. Well, it depends on the extent of the conflict. It's still very unclear, and that may have changed by the time people tune into the coronacast. If the conflict spreads, if it's uh, highly disruptive, and you've got a breakdown of health protection, And my understanding is that the Ukraine does not have a very high level of immunisation compared to other countries in Europe. And Russia is largely immunised with the Russian vaccine, which is probably not very effective. So you've got a group of vulnerable people there around the Ukraine and the Russian border who are vulnerable to COVID. And you could see high rates of circulation and you could see new variants spinning off and then spreading to the rest of Europe. And just a quick history lesson. War is an important factor in the history of pandemics. Plague, which is a bacterial infection, really took off in the 14th century around a siege. Ironically, in Crimea, the Mongols were laying siege to the port of Kaffa, which was controlled by the Genoese. The Mongols used plague in the Crimea as a warfare germ. They threw corpses over the parapets. Plague spread amongst the Genoese and the Genoese fled in fear. They took plague on their ships back to Genoa and then it spread into Europe. So unfortunately, um, this area has already been the source of one pandemic, although the original source was actually Central Asia. The first known outbreak of syphilis was in the 15th century at the siege of Naples almost certainly brought to Naples by sailors from Columbus's first voyage. Syphilis is a New World disease. The sailors caught it um, on Hispaniola and brought it back to Europe with them. A second voyage wasn't funded at that time. The sailors had to find work, and they found work as mercenaries at the siege of Naples. The Italians called it the French pox, and the French called it the Italian disease. Very little changes. So we're not in the 14th or 15th century. We're not even at the turn of the 20th century, which is when we saw another pandemic related to war, which of course was the 1918 flu, which followed the First World War. But what lessons should we be taking from history? We tend to think of war in geopolitical terms, the fight over territory, resources and what have you. And this is clearly a fight over territory, resources and some spurious notion of history. War has an enormous impact on human health and well-being, always has had. You've got dislocation, you've got deaths, you've got malnutrition, you've got spread of epidemic disease, in this case spread of pandemic disease, and you've obviously on top of 
death from violence, um, bombs, shooting, collapsing buildings and so on. So wars recurrently are major events in terms of human health and disease. I guess all we can do at this stage is see how it plays out and hope that modern day humans don't make some of the mistakes that previous ones have made. I love your sense of optimism, Tegan. <laughs> I'll do whatever I can to cling to that silver lining. Let's look at a little closer to home, Norman. WA, one of your favourite holiday destinations, is is looking to reopen next week, but they've already got hundreds of new cases and it's spread beyond just that uh, southwest corner of WA into more regional areas. Yes, it is a worry because particularly in the northwest, uh, Aboriginal communities are so incredibly vulnerable and it's made the jump in the last couple of days from the running along to about 200 up to over 600, which we saw in the eastern states. So nothing exceptional about WA. Unfortunately, it is taking off. And by the time we get to next week when borders open, the case numbers will be much higher. But there's some local news from the beginning of the Omicron outbreak here in Australia that is giving us an idea of how the virus spreads based on some super spreading events that happened in Newcastle, in New South Wales. Yep. Um, So this is a study going back to early December where there were two outbreaks. One was in a nightclub, a theme night with lots of singing and dancing. And the other was a a much more conservative affair, which was a medical student graduation ball. But still, social distancing isn't a feature of events like that, typically. That's right. So there was no density limits. There were no masks. But there were QR codes and people had to register their immunisation status. So it was possible for the researchers to go back and examine when people were uh, immunised related to the spread of the virus at the events. There was significant spread at both events. This was an Omicron event. And ironically, just a few days before these two events in early to mid-December, the Hunter region of New South Wales had the lowest numbers of Delta cases that they'd had. But I think there was one day where they only had three cases. That was their lowest number. And these two events were a reflection of the Omicron outbreak growing fast. Look, And what they showed is kind of what we know already, which is that there was reduced effectiveness of two doses quite quickly after the second dose. And uh, that was against infection. There wasn't much severe disease. I think about two or three percent of those who were infected ended up going to an emergency department. But they were youngish people. Yeah, and they weren't admitted, but they did turn they did turn up at the ED. They didn't see a big effect of boosters, but it wasn't there were there weren't a lot of people who were boosted, and there weren't that many people who were unvaccinated. So it was hard to compare that, and there wasn't much difference between the brand of vaccine that they got. But interestingly, what they did show was that there was a difference between the two events in terms of spread. So similar levels of immunisation, different levels of spread. And the point that they were making here is that vaccines do provide some protection against infection, at least Omicron, not as much as Delta. But the point here is that the nature of the events were different. You had nightclub, which were people letting all hang out and having a lot of fun and singing and dancing and having been to a couple of medical school balls, usually that sort of letting all hang out happens after the ball's finished, not at the ball itself. So much more sedate affair. So it it, it emphasises that our behaviour on top of the vaccine makes a big difference. Right. So coming back to this vaccines plus idea where vaccines are sort of a foundation, but they're not they're not enough by themselves and that we need to have things like density limits or like some of the restrictions we've seen where you're not allowed to sort of stand up and drink or sing might be useful. Yeah, particularly if we're going through another outbreak. And the senior author on that study, by the way, is Professor Christine McCartney. 
and we've got her on Monday's Coronacast. She's going to be talking about childhood immunisation, which is, seems to not being taken up as much as one had hoped, maybe about a 50% uptake, what's going on, and uh, Christine will also cover the latest safety and effectiveness data. So that's Monday's Coronacast. That's Monday's Coronacast, but today is still Friday and we're going to do quick-ish. Five Friday, Norman. I've got a couple of questions that I want you to answer in quick succession, please. Okay. Michael said his son is age six, had had the Pfizer vaccine for the first dose and is soon going to be due for his second shot. He's wondering whether he should get Moderna if he can, given that it's now approved for ages, kids age six and up. So mixing of doses is not approved. So you've got to follow the vaccine that you had in your first dose. Mixing is permitted with booster doses, where they're not considered booster doses anymore, the third dose, and uh, that's not yet approved for children. Um, but at this point, your first two doses have got to be from the same brand. And we'll talk to Christine on Monday about the comparative effectiveness of Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth's obviously a regular listener of the show because she addresses us. Hi, Dr. Norman Brownpants Swan and Dr. I'm not a doctor, Tegan Silverlining Taylor. <laughs> can you please ponder on whether or not SARS-CoV-2 can remain dormant in the body post-infection? Could it happen to be like chickenpox where there's a likelihood it could re-emerge later like shingles? It's a really good question and coronaviruses are not typically latent viruses. By that I mean they go into a cell like a nerve cell or they go into an immune cell like HIV and sit there dormant and then come out later. There's very little evidence that coronaviruses actually can do that. So in other words, I think we can rely on the fact that when you've had your coronavirus, if you get a second coronavirus infection, it's it's almost certainly another variant, not the same one coming back. And another question from someone who knows our, our, your biases, who uh, starts by saying, please answer this question from a South Australian. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, Chris. Chris says they've just become eligible for a booster. It's three months since their second jab. The cases are low in South Australia. And Chris is wondering whether it would be a good idea to wait another couple of months and get their booster a few weeks before the beginning of winter. You are considered up to date with your vaccine anything up from three months to six months after your second jab. I can't give you any advice. If it was me, I'd be getting the booster as soon as I can because the Omicron is still around and you want that protection. And that protection against severe disease does from the Israeli data and other data last really quite a long time. You get a good uplift. And I would be taking my protection now, not later. Well, that's all the questions I've got for you, Norman. And that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. But if you've got a question or comment, you can send it in to us by going to abc.net.au slash coronacast. Unless you're from South Australia, in which case, keep it to yourself. We'll see you on Monday. We'll see you then. 